and welcome to a grad chat your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at queen's my name is cj the dj and i'm your host for this week's grad chat of course a show like this could not happen without the support of the school of graduate studies and postdoctoral affairs as well as cfrc so thank you very much to both of them now, if you may miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CFRC podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Angela Stanley, who is a pre-doctoral fellow in the Black Studies Department at Queen's under the supervision of Dr. Rachel de Silveria Gorman from York University. And we also have Caroline Souffron, who is also a pre-doctoral fellow in the Black Studies Department at Queen's, under the supervision of Dr. Simon Lapierre at the University of Ottawa. Welcome to Grad Chat, Angela and Caroline. Thank you for having us. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for having us. This is great. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, I'm not going to let you two off the hook so easily. And I must admit, in in a studio like this, and, and I'm not the best at doing the studio, it's hard when I've only given them one microphone. So they will be sharing it <laughs> just to make things a little harder than what they, they can be. But there's a couple of questions I want to ask you first before we actually get into your respective research topics. Now, of course, I first met you both last year at Dissertation on the Lake, which is out at our biology station at Elbow Lake. How did you find that experience? Because for those who don't know, it is a writing camp. I thought it was a really great experience to um, be able to go out in nature, um, touch some grass, be in the water, um, and also, you know, read when the sun's out and, you know, right. Uh, it was great meeting other grad students who are at different stages in, in their doctoral process and just learning from them, uh, sharing with them. It makes you really uh, think about your research, think about how your research relates to other people's research, and also just you have you get to have fun. And the meals are delicious. Yeah. And well, you don't have to cook all the time. <laughs> no, but I, I do get you to cook a little bit. <laughs> because you don't want me cooking. <laughs> what about you, Caroline? Same thing. I think it was a great experience because very often as grad students, it can be difficult to find time to write. And there's a lot of distractions and nowadays. So when you have to be there for five days and with other people who are in the same same situation, I feel it's more motivating and it yeah it's helpful <laughs> so i'm going to ask you about what does this term pre-doctoral fellow mean because most people know when it comes to grad studies and, and after grad it's mm -hmm. like we've got the master's students we've got the doctoral students then we have postdoctoral fellows mm -hmm. but your pre-doctoral fellows what does that actually mean well it's a fairly new thing in canada i know it's more common in the u.s so basically, this pre-doctoral fellowship is for um, doctoral students who are like in the final stages of their um, doctoral degrees. So Angela and I, we, we were basically at the stage where we're writing our dissertation. So we finished like the, the first steps of coursework and comps and all the other steps before, like the project proposal yeah. and everything. So now we're like towards the end. So we're here to have time to write and to meet other people and hopefully get some mentorship also from um faculty and stuff so yeah. <laughs> yeah but but you're not actually from you're not doing your doctoral studies at queen's no. no so this cohort we all are from different universities 
We're from different universities, so our home university is where we'll receive our degrees from, but this serves as a really great opportunity to broaden our horizons in terms of um, both faculty, uh, mentorship, and um, just experiences, community experiences. I know we're, we're all doing community-based research, and so being able to be in another place, being able to engage with community on the topics that we're um, talking about uh, is really great, um, and it allows, us, it allows for that process. And in addition to that, we also are teaching a course in the winter semester, so it allows us that sort of professional development opportunity as well, this pre-doctoral fellowship. That's awesome. So I guess that's why you wanted to come in and give it a go. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it seemed like an excellent opportunity. And Queens yeah. is a really great campus. So yeah. we were, like, for myself, I know I was looking forward to it. And also meeting some of my academic, like, heroes. So that's... Yeah. And I think that's, that's a big thing, isn't it? Is having making the most of opportunities that become available while you're doing your graduate yeah. studies. It's very easy just to think about purely your own research mm -hmm. but it's making those connections along the way using opportunities like I mean I know as a doctoral student we have the lake shift mm -hmm. and York actually sends students mm -hmm. uh, to the lake shift to be part of that so I, that is one way you're getting to meet people mm -hmm. outside your field and from other universities mm -hmm. but this is the opportunity that you've been given which is fantastic and I think that was through the Faculty of Arts and Science that mm -hmm. have done that correct? Yeah yeah, yeah. It's through the Faculty of Arts and Science, and our Black Studies department is housed in the Gender Studies department, so we get we get mm -hmm. a bit of all of the world. Yeah. That's um, fantastic. Yeah. And also yeah. an opportunity to teach a course. Yeah. Yes. So for myself, I'm teaching a course this semester called uh, Sexual Citizenship and Disability. It closely links to my work. Um, a lot of my work looks at disability and the roles um, that society, ourselves, our race, our culture play uh, when uh, queer, disabled, racialized folks are forming intimate partnerships, so dating, hooking up, and all of that, and then forming family and kinship structures. So right. what does family look like for us? And so this, this course closely links to the work that I do and I'm really excited the students are excited we had our first class yesterday and yeah they're really keen on it so I'm looking forward to that that's great and what about you Caroline <laughs> same so the the course that I'm teaching this semester is called uh, me too across the globe transnational movement and sexual violence so basically it's the same thing it's really related to my research so my research at the doctoral level is more um, about me too and Quebec mm -hmm. uh, but for this course we're going to talk about how me too took shape and in different countries and regions of the world and same thing like the students are really really excited I have about 15 students and they're really happy about the class size too because we're gonna have an opportunity to talk that's great um, yeah yeah well it's gonna be interesting because mm -hmm. that's really nice that you're allowed mm -hmm. to do a course on mm -hmm. your particular subject area yeah. it's hard for the students if they suddenly realize this is such a great course and then you're gone mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and who's gonna take up the mm. reign of that particular course after but then maybe that opens up other opportunities mm -hmm. so uh, so that's fantastic well, we better get on and talk about your research because <laughs> it's really, really important. And so, Carol Ann, I'd mm -hmm. like to start with you, mm -hmm. if that's okay. Now, your research examines, as you mentioned, the Mwa'osi movement or Me, Me Too movement in the province of Quebec from the perspective of black feminist activists and black women survivors. So give me a bit of an overview mm -hmm of why you wanted to do that and I guess some of that's apart from you know the origins and evolution of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah so I've been involved in a feminist movement in Quebec for a few years so uh, for example like uh, 
community organizations. Uh, I've worked also with survivors of sexual violence. And one of the things that I've noticed over time is that there's a strong erasure of the contribution of black women in general in Quebec. So there's a lot of black women who have done stuff like in the 70s, even before, and very often there's no record of what they've done. Right. And then the next generations have to redo the same things again and then realize, oh, okay, so there were people who were there before us who did the same thing. So that's an interesting um, dynamic to, to observe and to notice. But uh, when it comes to the Me Too movement, when the movement went viral in 2017, yes. it was mostly associated with uh, Hollywood actresses. For example, the tweet that Alyssa Milano um, did about about Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal that happened at, at the time. But very quickly, people realized that there was a black woman who had thought about this 10 years before, and her name is Tarana Burke. And she started this movement in 2006, and it was for um, black women and girls who are from um, like disadvantaged uh, backgrounds. So now we know that it's Tarana Burke that founded this movement. I think Elisa Milano just didn't know about her. So when she found out, she, she just said, oh, there was someone else who thought about this before. And in Quebec, it was the same thing. So when Me Too went viral in Quebec, which we call the Moisi movement, it was mostly white women who were well-known in Quebec that we were seeing on TV and talking right. about that, which is a good thing because I think it's important that people speak up because it allows me also to do research on this. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do that well, research. Someone's got to start it, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. But I think it's important to extend our empathy to everyone who has experienced sexual violence and not mm -hmm. just some survivors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned in your note the tension between visibility and invisibility of black mm -hmm. feminists in Quebec mm -hmm. and within the broader Quebec feminist movement. Mm -hmm. yeah. what, do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so like I said, like uh, the, the contribution of black women in general in Quebec is it's not very visible, but there's been people who have been doing a lot of work in history, for example, but mostly in English. And Quebec, the, the official language is in French, mm -hmm. so not everyone can read English in Quebec. So when it comes to visibility and visibility, so since the George Floyd in 2020, the thing that happened, there's yes. a bit more black people on TV, black women also, like who are writing uh, columns, who are com commenting in the media and everything. But because they're... Like, there's not tons of, of them and of us because I'm, I'm, I'm also writing a column uh, regularly. Um, right. So you become a bit hyper-visible, <laughs> uh, whether you want it or not. And for some reason, uh, for some people, when they see a black woman, just not even if, even if you're not talking, you're just there. <laughs> for some people, it's, um, I don't know, it's triggering for them or something. I don't know. So yes, you do have visibility, but there's often like a price that comes with that. For example, I know some people, for me, I've been lucky so far, but I know a few of my colleagues who have received threats and everything. So, oh, yeah. Nice. And, and I know someone also who um, who was writing a column and gave up because, yeah, she has, she has a daughter and she decided to, I don't want to write anymore. So, right. yeah, so those things happen. Yeah. Which is a real shame, actually, because the voice is really, yeah. really important. Yeah. So what are you hoping to come out of the work mm -hmm that you've been studying? I mean, mm -hmm. what's the ultimate goal mm -hmm. other than writing your thesis and you yeah. get your PhD? <laughs> yes, so uh, my goal with this is really to like give credit and tr uh, tribute to mm -hmm. the people who have been working on, on this for many decades. So not most of them are in academia, but they're doing very important work. My goal also is to um, write in a way that 
accessible that people can understand because I wrote uh, a short book about uh, the themes of my thesis, but it's not an right. academic book. Right, which so, is important. Yeah, so I wanted people to actually understand yes. <laughs> what they're reading. So, yeah, so I think that's really important. And also to give voice to people who have experienced sexual violence but who feel like they can talk about it or they don't have space to talk about it. So I think it creates like a less shame around this topic and people can feel better because they know that they're not alone in this. Yeah. So is it more about creating something to, as you said, mm-hmm. um, those who have unfortunately experienced sexual violence, mm-hmm. more of a support system mm-hmm. as opposed to pointing fingers mm-hmm. at governments and whoever mm-hmm. else mm-hmm. are saying these women need protecting mm-hmm. or men. Yeah, or men too, yes. yeah. Yeah, well, it's sure that I want to be able that that there's going to be like more policies and because very often in Canada, we use the term visible minority. Yes. And that puts a lot of people together. It's very hard to find actually um, governmental documents in Quebec with the word black. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So they talk about indigenous people, immigrant populations, racialized people, but... Some people are racialized but are not immigrants, so it's not like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're putting everyone in the same category, but it's very hard to find something with the word black <laughs> in a governmental document, so that's an issue because anti-black racism is a specific form of discrimination, so right. yeah. yeah. And with the short-form book that mm-hmm. you've written, which mm-hmm. is more for a, a broader mm-hmm. audience yeah. than an academic audience... Yeah. Will you also write this in French, for instance, not just in English? So the book is actually in French. Oh, great. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's in French. And it's interesting because some people, and well, I've been told that people and their and CJEPs that we have in Quebec and universities are using it to teach and their students. Fantastic. Uh, even some people in Ontario also are right. using it. So that was surprising to me because that's it's not very, like, yes, it's uh, not an academic book. Like, I talk about some studies and stuff, but I try to explain this in a way that people understand but there's also a lot of non-academics who read it as mm-hmm. well like I've had someone tell me oh I don't read usually but that I, I read it so that's and, a, you know, really, and that's the sign of, yeah. a, a, of a good academic and <laughs> that you can present something mm-hmm. in a format that more than mm-hmm. people who are specializing in your field understand mm-hmm. all right because yeah. like I say to other people like 95 percent of the people you talk to are not in academia mm-hmm. yeah so that's really really important so if you're yeah. getting that feedback already that's brilliant so well done <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's important because I feel like even when I do public speaking I think it's important for people to understand mm-hmm. what you're talking about or yes. understand what they're reading because Otherwise, you're just listening to yourself. So yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and that gets a bit boring after a while. Yeah, just exactly. Just yourself, isn't it? In front of the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you about this today. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Carolyn, thank you for that. I'm, I'm going to put Angela on the hot seat now. Awesome. <laughs> and so, Angela, your research topic is queer and disabled afterlives of racial eugenics. I love those words. Um, <laughs> it's so a mouthful, isn't it? It, it is a bit of a Well, for me it is. So can you give us an overview of what all that is? Yeah, for sure. So a lot of my work, as I mentioned before, looks at sort of the role that race and culture play when folks are uh, dating, hooking up, um, and trying to figure out family kinship structures or start a family, regardless of what that family shape looks like. And so one of the things that I found um, through, you know, through my community work and talking with folks, um, you know, just getting to chat with folks, and one of the things that would pop up frequently uh, in queer community, particularly uh, gay male community, was sort of these 
catchphrases, if you will, that would be on dating sites. So a very like a more popular one is no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Oh, and so okay. yeah. I've never been on their site. So yeah. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's a very it's a very particular kind of kind of understanding the world, really. Mm-hmm. And so for my friends dating who many of whom are racialized and would bump into sort of these like blanket statements from people who, you know, you're just swiping on a site and so it got me to thinking okay how do we arrive at this sort of idea that well I have a preference and this is my preference so thinking through how we understand preferences and how we understand you know how we come to date who we date how we come to start families with who we start families with how we come to these sort of realizations these taken for granted notions and I it led me to eugenics (laughs) <laughs> which means for those people so for who, those like who me had to go to thesaurus and, and dictionary <laughs> yeah for those who don't know eugenics is a practice uh, that was grounded or rooted in sort of uh, social darwinism which is the survival of the fittest right. ideal that we are going to breed and i mean that in all the senses of the word but it started in, in sort of agricultural practice for okay. breeding stronger uh, stock so that could be livestock that could be plants right. Um, it's a practice we still sort of use today in agriculture where we want to make sure that the plants and the, the livestock that we're growing are hardy that can withstand, you know, the elements. Uh, however, some people decided we're going to take that into human intervention. So, so uh, when we're going to, you know, get married and have kids, because that is sort of the understanding of what we as humans are supposed to do, we are going to breed the best stock. Uh, under whose definition and, is best stock? Yeah, and that is that is where a lot of the questions lie. So in North America, especially Canada, um, <laughs> it's it's a very white supremacist notion of what the best stock is. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea yeah. that we are breeding folks who are healthy, quote unquote healthy, uh, which means that for disabled people, you're not a part of that. Right. It's oftentimes folks who are not racialized. So it's very white, um, white and a particular understanding of white. So it's that sort of Anglo-Saxon understanding of what whiteness means. And so even under that umbrella, you have folks who today we classify as white who were not understood to be um, good breeding stock. Right. And you see this as sort of when we talk about the history of Ellis Island, we talk about the history of, you know, Canada and how and, you know, what Canada means historically. Uh, we see that play out in various ways, mm-hmm. understanding how sort of native populations and indigenous populations and uh, were treated, how folks were denied entry at ports. A lot of this has to do with right. and, and a lot of this like thinking about IQ tests and how folks were administered IQ oh, tests. IQ tests, they uh, drive me nuts. Upon, upon arrival, when they mm-hmm. didn't speak a language, they, you know, like we think about these things and a lot of these, the, when I talk about afterlives, a lot of these things then exist today because we can all go online and be like, oh, look at our IQ tests or look yeah. at our this test or that test. Um, and we don't think about those things as being grounded in eugenics. We think about them as sort of this fun, cute, quirky thing that we're doing to like figure out something about ourselves but like when so when I talk about afterlives I talk about the legacies of these sort of interventions so the fact that someone can today in 2023 2024 yes um you know talk like refer to the fact that they just have a preference well your preference sort of is rooted in something right how do we arrive at sort of this sort of preference and so that's what I want to do with this project is sort of drill down into what do we mean when we say preference, mm-hmm. because it intervenes in a lot of our lives. So when we're dating, um, a lot of people date with the view to start families. And so if they're dating with this idea that I'm looking for, for someone 
to love, to marry, to have children with, then what they're looking for goes beyond a preference. Right. Oh, my God. I, okay, I'd never thought about it that way. So with this then, what mm. kind of research method are you here? Are you talking to people? Are you looking at literature? How are you collecting the data to put in your thesis and come with some sort of conclusion, if there is even a conclusion to all of this? There may never be a conclusion, I think, on some yeah. of these topics. I mean, so, yeah, the, the, I, the conclusion bit, I, I do agree. Like, I don't know that there's necessarily a conclusion. It's more awareness. Mm -hmm. um, but for this project, I'm not actually interviewing people. So for my uh, master's research, I talked with people about this topic, right. specifically youth. Because I was like, well, people have these ideas when they're 19, 20. So I wanted I wanted to talk to these young people to see what they're like. What and as a, at the time, I, I too was a youth, and so I was like, let's talk to my peers. Let's see what we're, what is it that we're talking about. And so from those conversations I had with um, my uh, interviewees, I found out that they all these other things played a role. So race mm -hmm. played a role. I had one interviewee tell me, well, I'm already I'm already queer. I can't bring home someone who's in a different like racial category than I am. Um, I had people talk about class issues. So money and all of those things. So it got me to thinking, okay, well, I'm talking with people, but I feel like if I talk to more people, I'm going to get more of the same. Yes, or get confused. Yeah. I'll get confused with too many <laughs> ideas. Yeah, and so for me, I wanted to go a little bit further back. Mm -hmm. So the methodology for this project is a bit mixed. I'm doing a bit of history, so I'm going to archives. Right. So I'm going to the uh, ar archives. Uh, so formerly the lesbian, the gay and lesbian oh, archives of, right. of uh, Canada, or, yeah, Ontario, I believe. Also uh, interacting with the Eugenics Archive Canada, because we do have one. Okay. And so looking at these sort of historical materials to sort of ground um, the research. And then I'm sort of taking us into the imaginary. So one of the places that we find ourselves as romantic figures, as, you know, potential mates, potential parents, potential, you know, familial structures mm -hmm. is within the imaginary and so when I talk about the imaginary what I mean is sort of romance novels so I'm also going to be taking a look okay. at romance novels historically um, romance novels the protagonists have generally been able-bodied very thin white for the most part non-disabled non-racialized non-queer uh, that has changed so okay. that has changed significantly since um, when and I would say of... in about the last so I've been reading romance novels since I was 15. Okay, so it's going to date you with that. It's going to date me. It's going to date me. And that's all right, though. Um, but in the last, I'd say, 15 or so years, and right. I mean this is more so in the mainstream, because mm -hmm. there's always been underground right. novels. Like, right. there's always been the, you know, you can go find it if you really want to find it. But in the mainstream, there has been a lot more. Um, I've I, Like, the first time I read a romance novel where the protagonist had chronic health issues and was a, flat, a fat black woman. And I was like, oh my God, it's me. What is this? And seeing yourself in the sort of imaginary as mm -hmm. a romantic lead is important. I mean, when people talk about representation on TV, it's the same thing. Well, I, and I've noticed in TV over the last 15, 20 years how mm -hmm. gay role models are there, disability models, and they are all coming in. Yeah. In, and it's kind of like they have to have that now. Yes. Whether it, that's still doing what it should do, I don't know, but at least it's visible. Yeah, I mean, we can have a whole discussion on, on that. On, on that. Um, <laughs> sure but but the, the sort of, like, fact that, that folks are entering into this imaginary, so we're, we're 
in the imaginary as not burdens as disabled people, as not problems as racialized people, as not this like shameful secret as queer people is really important. So we're moving from the historical to sort of the imaginary. And then also I'm going to be looking at uh, sort of the more concrete um, aspects of Fam like familial kinship structures. Mm -hmm. So as queer folks, as disabled folks, our kinship looks different. Our families look different. Oftentimes queer folks are still being kicked out of their homes. Right. So forming right. families, are it's a lot of family of choice. Care work is also a part of that if you're a disabled person. It's a very different kinship structure. So when I talk about kinship structures, I don't just mean sort of that nuclear family ideal. I'm talking about a kinship broadly. And so Unfortunately, what that means, though, a lot of the times is that where you find this information on how to go about figuring out family doesn't exist in academic spaces. It's right. a lot of what I like to call digital archiving. So people on podcasts like this one, yes. people on Internet forums, etc. I remember once I had a, uh, one of some colleagues, they're a queer couple, and they were looking to start a family and they had no idea how Red to go about stuff. doing it. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you even how do you do it? Who are the best doctors? Who are the doctors are, who are queer friendly? Where do you find this information? It's not in your doctor's office. So a lot of their, you know, it took time and it took effort to just figure that out um, in a way that heterosexual folks don't have to. So again, what are you hoping to come from this? Uh, you know, what do you want to present? Yeah, so I'm hoping one, it's a bit of an awareness piece for myself, for my communities to sort of think about the fact that when we're dating when, you know, things aren't going the way that we planned or when we're being ghosted or when we're, you know, that there's a reason for it beyond us, outside of us. Right. And so it's not a failure on your own behalf. It's not a failure on, on yeah, yourselves. for sure. It's, it's something beyond us. There's other things working underground that mm -hmm. folks aren't even really cognizant of that's going on. And then the second thing that I want to draw from this is sort of making these connections with sort of the historical, the imaginary, the current, and then also the future. Like thinking of a future where we can be our whole selves, we can show up as our whole selves dating and be appreciated for our whole selves. Right. And so that's 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 that other part. And then also um, I, I really enjoy doing historical research. Like it's I'm a fan of it. I love archival mm -hmm. research. And so I'm hoping to also like think about these debates, as Caroline mentioned, like folks have been having a lot of these debates for so long. Yes. I remember being in the archives recently and like stumbling upon stuff that I'm like, well, we're having these debates now. This is like the 70s and there was still the 60s, 70s and they're still have they're having so, those debates then. And so but why is it that we don't know that those debates are happening? Or one, that we don't know they're happening, or two, why are we still asking the same question, question having yeah. still still the same debate? Yeah. yeah, and so, like, that's the other thing for me, is being able to, like, then take this research and go forward and say, hey, these things that we're having, these debates, we need to stop having these debates, figure our stuff out, and then start to build. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, so that the next generation doesn't have to do go this again. again. So... Caroline, let me ask you, with the, the fact that you're doing a course in mm -hmm. your particular topic, and, mm -hmm. and I'll come to you again, uh, Angela, in that, because you're talking about the work that you're doing, mm -hmm. do you think listening to today's student mm -hmm. is going to help finish or maybe round out your, mm -hmm. your thought process of how you want to perhaps conclude mm -hmm. your research topic? 
for this particular degree because <laughs> I know you can just keep going and going. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed because now we talk about Me Too and it's Me Too is very big, like mm -hmm. a, especially in France and the U.S. and Quebec, especially when it comes to the rest of Canada. Also, there's been some distinctions. But the thing that I like to remind people is that there's been like multiple decades of people talking about sexual yes. violence. It's just that we listen a bit more to to this discourse now. But people have been doing this work for for decades. For example, like in Quebec, uh, around like the 60s, 70s, that's where the the first women's shelters started opening up, and also the rape crisis shelters as well. Okay, right. So this discussion has been mm. going on for a long time. So very often um, when I talk with people my age, like they think, oh, I'm the first one to do this and I'm the first one to think about that. I'm like, no, no you're not. So we can, <laughs> it's great that you're doing it. Yeah. But. <laughs> we're just like, uh, I see it like as a chain and that we're all right. doing our part for like the next generation. And we're always sitting on the shoulders of the people who were before us. Yes. So movements don't just happen out of the blue. No, <laughs> it, right. it takes like multiple milestones and also like, context and circumstances and, and I luck. think it's also as mm -hmm. you kind of mentioned this is that mm -hmm. we don't forget what's happened before yeah. so we're not starting from scratch mm -hmm. yeah but it's you talk about the awareness mm -hmm. it, this has been going on for a long time, long time we are yeah. aware of it what can we do to progress it mm -hmm. and I think it's the same for you mm -hmm. um, Angela yeah for sure I mean the for The final piece of my doctoral project, I mentioned, you know, thinking about the future and thinking about sort of uh, speculative fiction as a way to sort of work through that and think about, you know, what is a future look like where, you know, queer, disabled, racialized folks can, you know, date and love and have family. And what does that look like? And I think being in this class, having my having students, you know, Inter interrogate the the themes and the topics that we're going to be covering. I think it'll allow me to sort of really work through um, what their lives look like dating. Mm -hmm. How do they find you know these topics, this sort of ideas that that I'm asking them to really like dive down and and critically analyze. And also thinking through you know, I think every 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 one of us likes to think that we're like an originator, and sometimes we are. But I, when I say these debates have been happening, yeah. I remember I was at the archives and, you know, I was looking at posters for dances and there was a wheel, the wheelchair accessible symbol right. were like appeared on two of them and then disappeared. So it was not there. It appeared for a couple and then disappeared. And then I went to the minutes and it's the same debates. How can we make dances accessible? How can we right. deal with misogyny in queer communities? How can, and I'm like, well, we're still we're still doing this. What was going on? And I think about all of the young younger activists that I've met um, just over the summer at various conferences and how they're working and their sort of ideas of community and how they're you know, they're organizing community. And I think to myself, oh my gosh, like these folks are doing amazing work, mm -hmm. but also there's this historical legacy of amazing work that they can use also to bolster what they're doing and how do we get them to know that these things exist right so angela i want to ask you one more question uh -huh. if i may i noticed when you talked about your extracurriculars you're engaged in as you said the world of accessibility and technology mm -hmm. about accessibility in all spaces and places and digital accessibility is as you said having a moment with many institutions and companies making their policies and tools more accessible for those with disabilities Now, I don't know if you're aware, but one of our other grad students, Glenda Watson-Hyatt, who is in mechanical material engineering, 
was honoured recently with the 2023 MyTax Award for Outstanding Innovation in a master's category. And her work was investigating the main barriers to employment faced by Canadians living with speech disabilities. So what do you think about that in terms of, you know, here is someone who has cerebral palsy writing about this, about her challenges and things, and, and really at the forefront there. And how does that kind of work with some of the things that you're thinking about in this world of accessibility and t- technology? Yeah, no, I, when I say accessibility in tech is having a moment, it, it truly is. Um, I Previously to coming to Queens, I had taken a, a brief leave of absence and I was actually working at a tech nonprofit. And so part of the work that I did there was, you know, I was a facilitator, but I also created a course called Accessibility and Technology. And one of the things that I found is that students are really keen on it. Businesses are really keen on it. I'm also part of a nonprofit. uh, It's called Odlin, Ontario Digital Literacy and Access Network. And I was the accessibility coordinator for that organization. And part of what we did was to help queer folks be able to digitally access things, uh, particularly queer seniors. So how do you use a laptop? Things like that. Right. You know, how do how do you use the accessibility functions on your computer? Like a lot of people don't know that you have all of our electronic devices that we love so much have these accessibility functions or Mm -hmm. how to use them. And one of the things that I found uh, in the last in the last little bit is that a lot of companies are moving towards these accessibility tools. Microsoft, in particular, um, as much as folks will poo-poo Microsoft, they're actually doing a lot of work in this forefront. Right. And so I think uh, they have some initiatives that that are set to start this year, where they're making um, a voice is it voice speech to speech to text sorry right yeah speech to text and then the reverse text to speech. Um, available on on their systems. And so for someone who's talking about or doing work on folks' uh, barriers to employment, particularly for folks who have uh, disabilities related to speech, speaking, this is really important because Mm -hmm. now these tools exist in a place that they didn't before. Uh, A lot of these tools are are becoming free or low cost, which is a barrier. Um, Cost is like, I think back five years ago or, you know, five, 10 years ago where my colleagues were paying thousands of dollars for speech-to-text software. Right. And, you know, the only way they could afford it was because it was subsidized through the university or subsidized through, you know, whatever. So now that companies like Microsoft and, you know, other, and I know I'm, uh, this is not a paid ad, I promise, <laughs> are actually doing this work to ensure that this text-to-speech software exists and is free is really, really great. Which makes I mean, things it makes things more inclusive. It then, makes right? things more inclusive. I mean, in it's places. why Zoom took off because Zoom mm-hmm. had one of the better speech to text software. And if you're in right. meetings for several hours every day, being able to read a text as opposed to having to pay attention is really important. Right. Um, I think what this research also helps to show is that dis- disabled people and sorry, I use the term disabled people as opposed to people with disabilities, because for me, the, pers- the personal is political. Um, And so that's why I use that terminology. And I don't know if uh, Glenda Glenda uses that terminology, but I do. And so it shows that disabled people, because for a long time, this narrative that disabled people are burdens and can't work and this, 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 and don't want to work and all of that sort of things when it's the societal barriers. It is the societal barriers. That make Mm -hmm. it difficult for us to engage in, in the employment sector, in various other sectors. It shows that folks are willing and want to. Yes. To be doing various kinds of work. And if they were just given the tools, right, then right. they would be able to thrive. I think it's if they're given the tools, but also in when we're talking about employment places, mm-hmm. the employer is not scared. Yeah. Know, because sometimes that's, that's, you know, 
the unknown, how is this going to work in our environment when we're doing this, this and this, without giving people the chance to show, well, it can work because we can do this, this and this. Well, yeah. When I, when I talk about tools, I mean also giving em- employees, employers the tools to be able to say, hey, this is doable, this is possible. Mm-hmm. It just takes a little bit of shifting your mindset to to think of re- or reorganizing. One of the things that I've, in disability community, that we always say, that we always tell people is that every single person on this earth currently um, will encounter disability in their lives yeah. at some point, whether yes. that's episodic, whether it's permanent, whether right. it's temporary. Yes, I and would so, agree. And so when we think about disability, we often think about those people over there. Right. We don't think about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so when we try to make our workplaces a more inclusive workplace, it benefits every employee. Yes. And that's what we need to start thinking about when we think about these employment spaces. It's a benefit to everyone. everyone. And so once we get to that place, that mindset of, hey, this is not actually just for Jim over there or Susan over there. This is actually for all of us. Yes. These tools, the speech to text, the if we're in a lot of meetings, the text to speech, if we're also like on a lot of meetings, thinking about work days and how long work days are, mm-hmm. that will help you know, that person who has childcare right. needs. When we think about just every little facet that we can make more inclusive allows for us to have a more fruitful work experience. And I think if employers are really interested in having their employees have a fruitful experience at work, yes. then integrating accessibility tools, integrating folks who know how to use these tools, who can train, right? These, this will flourish. It's a topic that we could just keep going <laughs> yeah. on and on and on. And I'm hoping actually Glenda will come on the show too so I can talk to her about, you know, a bit more about her mm-hmm. research and why, et cetera, et cetera, because uh, I think what she's doing is fascinating and, yeah. and clearly your your side of things too. It's, it's That's the kind of thing that can help everything. Yeah, forward. yeah. I, I think the one thing I will say just before like concluding this topic is that we also want to, you know, there's a, there's a term used, disability dongles. We want to be mindful that we don't create a lot of disability dongles. So disability dongles as a terminology just refers to items that usually able-bodied people think that disabled people want and need right. instead of asking disabled people hey what do you actually need to, su- to yes. like succeed so yes. just because I think in tech space that that happens a lot it's like mm-hmm. oh let's make this new shiny thing because disabled people can use it and it's like okay but there's a low-tech option that we've been asking for right. for like 10 years yes. can we get that thing please right right yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good point because we can be very innovative yep. but is it actually practical yeah, <laughs> yeah. so that is great, and thank you, thank you for sharing that with us. You two have been awesome to come on on the show. So thank you so much, both of you. You've, you're doing some incredible work, really important work, and I wish you the best of luck both in finishing your PhD. I wish you the best of luck in your course that you're both running this term. I know our students are very lucky here at Queen's to have both of you here, and I actually want to thank arts and science for bringing you both here in the first place because it's a win-win for everybody I think so I know we're very pleased that you accepted the challenge to come to Queen's and do this pre-doctoral fellowship so thank you both very much for coming on the show thank you for inviting us you're very welcome like this is really great and it's been an excellent experience so thank you so much excellent thank you so 
that's it everyone mm-hmm. a, another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end uh, don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either itunes google Podcasts, spotify and cfrc podcast just type in grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.